We've been talking about the life of Elijah for the last three weeks. We talked about his calling, and last week we talked about how um, he, well, he went all in with his calling. He, he, he sacrificed everything. He walked in obedience and was faithful to Elisha for a number of years, anywhere from 6 to 10, 12. Um, hard, it's kind of hard to tell, but, um, but when it got time for Elijah to be taken away, when Elisha's service to Elijah was over, um, Elijah said, what can I do for you? And Elisha said, I, I want a double portion of your spirit to be poured out upon me and, and Elijah basically said that's not something that I can give you that's something that God would have to give you but if you see me when he takes me away then you'll have what you ask for and we saw um, that immediately after that short burst of grief that he took the same mantle that, man, that Elijah had carried and went to the same Jordan River that they had just crossed on dry ground and smote the river and the waters departed Again, and Elisha went back across on dry ground, and the, and they, um, those that were watching from a distance, recognized immediately that he um, had what Elijah had. He had the spirit of God upon him, the power of God upon him to be a vessel for God in ministry. Um, sometimes I feel a little bit ashamed about all the Bible I hadn't preached in 28 years of ministry. <laughs> there are whole books of the Bible that I hadn't preached a verse out of. And sometimes I get a little bit self-conscious about that. Um, I, I try to go where the Lord leads me. I try to listen to the Lord and get some direction about where he wants me to go. But, I, but just to be very honest with you, sometimes I don't preach those books, those passages, those chapters. <laughs> because some of them are just really hard to study. Some of them are really hard to understand. And some of them are even harder to try to make some application from it. And and when I can't when I find it hard to study and I don't really understand what I'm what I'm trying to learn from it so that I can grow by it, I oftentimes just leave it alone. Now I believe all the word of God is profitable. I believe every word of God is profitable. I think it's there for a reason. And and I, I don't know that I'll ever get to preach everything in the book. Um, there's a lot there, um, but um, there are other passages that that maybe we do have a little bit of understanding of. Um, we, we're, we're comprehending a little bit of it, but they're just hard for us to rationalize. They don't, they don't seem to fit the nature and character of the God that we know and love. And so um, we, we avoid, I avoid sometimes passages of Scripture because of that. And this passage of Scripture that we're going to read this morning has some of both of that. And I've read some commentaries this week. I don't read a lot of commentaries. Because um, I don't think you ought to take any man. I don't think you ought to take me as being infallible or any man that wrote any book as being infallible. And we're not. We, we're prone to mistakes. And so I'm careful about reading too much commentary. I like to read. I like to open a Strong's Concordance. I like to study it out myself. And then I'll see what other people have to say sometimes just to compare what I've gleaned. Um, but I read some stuff this week in commentaries and in some sermons. And, and there's some folks that made a symbol out of everything in this story. Um, in fact, in one place it talked about the 42 kids that were um, little children, the King James Version says, that were torn by the bear. It said that those 42 weeks represented the last half of the tribulation. And I was scratching my head like, what? <laughs> I don't know how some people get some of the stuff that they do out of the symbolism, but I think some people see too much symbolism in this, and then there are other people that just disregard too much of this. And I'm going to try not to do either this morning. But we're going to read two stories that I believe belong together because they're, 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 they're um, actually illustrating uh, two um, competing principles, and that is that of, being, of one group of people being uncursed and another group of people being cursed. So read with me in 2 Kings chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. And, uh, and, and if you look back up at verse 18, Elisha is, is staying at Jericho at that particular time. So that gives you a little bit of context about the city. In verse 19, it says, The men of the city said unto Elisha, Behold, I pray thee, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord seeth, but the water is naught, and the ground barren. And Elisha said, Bring me a new cruise, and put salt therein, and they brought it to him. And he went forth unto the spring of the waters, and cast the salt in there, and said, Thus saith the Lord, 
I have healed these waters. There shall not be from thence any more death or barren land. So the waters were healed unto this day, according to the saying of Elijah, which he spoke. Now we're going to pause right there. Jericho was known as the city of palms. It was the first conquest of the promised land. You remember, um, it, this, this was five to six hundred years ahead of what we're reading right now. Um, but when the, when the nation of Israel came out of Egypt, wasted that 40 years in the wilderness because they murmured and complained and doubted and disbelieved God's promise. Um, but when they came back the next time, um, the first city that was in their way to claim the promised land was the city of Jericho. I've read some um, archaeological stuff that says um, that the city was walled, that the walls were fortified enough that you could erase uh, you, could, you could have raced seven chariots around the top of the walls, a huge city. Uh, and it was the first obstacle that stood in their way to the promised land. And, and, um, and, and, and because of their obedience to God, the walls collapsed to the city and they claimed Jericho as the first possession of the promised land. And so um, the city, the walls have not been rebuilt. Joshua made a curse that those walls never be raised up again. But the city um, was, was occupied after that by um, the Israelites. And they were dwelling in that city and dwelled in that city from that time forward. Uh, Joshua, or, or Elisha rather, is staying um, in the city of Jericho. And the people that had witnessed him receive that double portion and part of the Jordan River, um, the men of the city, um, recognizing the authority of Elijah, Elisha as God's prophet, came to him and asked him for mercy and healing upon their city. Now, there's some things I want to point out to you. Um, they said the situation of the city is good. The situation of the city is pleasant. If you look up the word situation, it just literally means the location of this city is in a good place. And if you look up the definition of the word pleasant, what they literally came to Joshua and said is this is a good city to live in. It, the location is great. It's an agreeable place to live. It's a beautiful place to live. Um, it was known as the city of palms. And, um, and it was a prosperous place perhaps for them to live. So it wasn't a bad place to live. But they said the city's got one significant serious problem and that is that the, that, that the water is bad. Uh, location is good. There's a lot of good here. But the water that flows out of that city is bad water. And they, they literally said that it, it, is, it is good for nothing and it makes the ground barren. Now I found this interesting when I looked up the word, especially since we're talking about um, Sanctity of Life Sunday today. Um, um, it, it, the, it, that word meant not only was the water not fit to drink, but that everywhere that water flowed it had a negative effect. And when we read that word unfruitful, we think immediately about crops. And I do believe that that's part of what's going on here is they couldn't, they couldn't irrigate their crops because the water was bad and it made the crops unfruitful. Um, but it's clear when, when, um, when the waters were healed, part of what Elisha said is there won't be any more death from those waters, neither will there be any more barren land. So this water was not only affecting the fruitfulness of their fields, it was making people sick and causing death. Um, when I looked up the word uh, barren ground, the word that was actually used in Strong's is the word that is used for miscarrying. And so it, it, ha it was causing miscarriages, it was causing sickness, it was causing death, it was causing um, the fields to be uh, unfruitful. So it's a good city, location-wise, beauty-wise, prosperity-wise, um, but you can't drink the water there. The water is bad. The water causes unfruitfulness. The water causes barrenness. The water causes death. And, and all of that may have been part of Joshua's curse upon the city. I, I'm going to go back and read it. But in Joshua chapter 6, after the walls fell, he said the city's never going to be raised up again like it was raised up this time. Doesn't mean it wasn't going to be occupied, but just that nobody's going to build these walls up like they were built up um, that God tore down. And so it may have all been part of Joshua's Joshua's curse, which is important to what's going on here because what they're, what they're coming to Elisha asking him to do is to undo that and to make the waters um, healthy again, to heal the waters. And so this is what I believe. And I, I know that I'm a, I am ascribing a symbol here that the Bible doesn't necessarily tell us this is exactly true. But here's what I'm speculating. Elisha's ministry is to Israel. 
Elisha's ministry is to Israel. Um, the northern nation, the northern kingdom, um, Judah was the southern kingdom. Um, the northern kingdom was, was more wicked in the sense that they had no godly kings ever. And the, and the, when, the king, when the kingdom separated, Israel had no godly kings. Judah had five. The five kings, the godly kings, led Judah in seasons of revival. Um, but the nation of Israel was plummeting on a downward spiral um, towards destruction. And they were destroyed 136 years before the nation of Judah was overtaken by the Babylonians. So I believe that what is being what is being illustrated for us here is the condition of the nation of Israel that Elisha has the responsibility to take over the role of Elijah and to go into that nation and begin to speak truth unto them, begin to speak healing unto them. And I think it's illustrative of Israel in this regard. Um, Israel was a chosen nation. God chose them to be his peculiar people and made a covenant with them through Abraham um, that they would multiply and that they would inhabit this land that Abraham trod. So they had been chosen by God to receive in a covenant um, this nation that they're now a part of. Not only that, the Bible tells in the New Testament that, they're, that they were elevated because unto them had, had been committed the oracles of God. Um, they had the word of God. They had the law of God. They, um, they were the only nation upon the earth that held the holy words of God in their hand um, and could be the witness to the nations that God um, had commanded them to be. So they had incredible potential. Um, Israel, had, Israel had incredible potential. Um, they had the same potential that Judah had. Um, they, had they, they, they could have been God's witness, God's light, God's representatives um, on the earth to the nations of the world. But what was flowing from them? The, the, the nation that Elisha was being sent into was a nation that was steeped in rebellion. Um, they were in rejection of God's law. Um, they were dabbling in idolatry. And that made them unfruitful and cursed and brought about the wrath of God and the judgment of God upon them um, because of it. So, so they had potential. It was a... They, 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 had, they were a chosen people, a covenant people, um, a people that had all of the knowledge that they needed to serve and worship God, but what was coming out of them was bitter. What was coming out of them was bad. What was coming out of them was making them unfruitful. What was coming out of them was causing them sickness and causing them um, death because of the judgment of God. Now I went back to Leviticus chapter 26 and you can read this same list in Deuteronomy chapter 28. What, what that means to me is that Leviticus 26 was given early in the wilderness wanderings. Um, and in Leviticus chapter 26 God said if you will keep my laws and do what I've said for you to do you're going to be blessed. And then he went on to say in, in Leviticus chapter 26 that if you disobey my word and walk contrary to my ways, you're going to be cursed. And, 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 the, and the thing is repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 28 because that is the end of the wilderness journey. That is the end of Moses' life. That is when Joshua was about to take over and they're going to go into the promised land. So God gave him that list twice. First at the beginning of their exodus from Egypt and then just before they entered the promised land. I want you to know um, that if you want to keep the land that I'm giving you, you're going to have to walk in obedience to me. If you want to be blessed and prosperous, then you have to do what I say to do. And if you don't, this is what will happen to you. And if you read Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 28, when you read about the disobedience, there are five levels of cursing that would happen. If you walk contrary to my ways, this is going to happen to you. And if you don't repent then, um, then I'm going to send to you seven times more than what you've received. And there are five levels where it got progressively worse in regard to the curses that God would bring upon the nation for their disobedience. And the fifth curse was that they would be scattered among the nations of the world. They would lose their identity. And that happened to the nation of Israel. They went too far. So let me read to you the particular passage of Scripture that I think we're seeing in fulfillment right here uh, in the city of Jericho. Leviticus chapter 26 verse 19 and 20. 
He said, I will break the pride of your power and I will make your heaven as iron, your earth as brass. You're not going to hear from me. You're not going to call upon me. Your strength will be spent in vain. You're going to labor in vain. I don't care how much you plow, how much you plant. Your land's not going to yield her increase. Neither shall the trees of the land yield their fruit. So I think that what what Jericho is seeing is the curse that God gave them uh, from Leviticus chapter 26, Numbers, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28. Um, you've been walking in disobedience. You've been walking. You've been walking uh, in rebellion. You've rejected the authority of my word, and this is what it's brought you. Now, there's a promise in that passage as well um, that they could make a different choice, and that and that they could come to God um, for for and confess their sins and fi- and find healing and find uh, restoration. I, I believe that that's what the men of this city did. Um, they recognized the authority of Elisha as a prophet of God who had the power of God uh, at his fingertips and that they came to him asking for him to be merciful upon them and to heal the waters of that city. Now, I understand this, that they didn't really repent of their sins. Um, they, didn't, they didn't turn uh, from their sinful ways. Um, but God was showing them that he could be merciful and gracious to them through his prophet. The judgment was not his plan, not his idea. Uh, it was not something that he wanted to do, but they had brought the curse upon themselves. But when they come to him and say, please uncurse us, please heal these waters, um, then God has the ability um, to use his man to go in and heal those waters. And I think, I think there's also an illustration there of anybody that's unsaved, uh, even a carnal Christian, even, even, a, even a church that has compromised itself and begin to walk away uh, from the Word of God. There's potential there. There's potential in that everybody has the opportunity to know God. Everybody has the opportunity to repent of their sins and to turn to God uh, and to find the healing um, that God has made available. So these men, in their prayer for mercy and healing... Um, we're given a command by Elisha that says, Go find me a new cruise and put salt in it. And without any question or without any reservation, you've got to understand what's going on here. That The water's been sick for a long time. The water's been bad for a long time. Um, the water's been bringing death and unfruitfulness for a long time. Possibly five to six hundred years long time because that's when the city was overthrown and re-inhabited by the nation of Israel. But these men come to Elisha and say, this is a good place to live, location, beauty, prosperity. But with bad water, it doesn't really matter. Because we can't continue. We can't produce fruit. We can't have children. We can't continue. We have no future unless the water is healed. And Elisha said, just bring me a new jar, brand new jar. Nothing ever been in it before. Put salt in it. And without any question, without any reservation, they moved and did what Elisha had asked them to do. Now that's faith that's being manifested in obedience. I do believe there's some symbolism in these things. I believe that the new cruise or the new jar represents a new man. Um... I'm, I'm trying not to read too much into this, but this is, this is my thought. Jesus said this, that a man won't put new wine in old wineskins. It's not wise to put new wine in old wineskins because as the wine ferments, it'll bust the bottle. So if you got new wine, use new wineskins. So I believe that the new cruise in this represents a new man, represents a man that comes abandoned of everything. I think it represents regeneration. And I believe that because, listen, God is not in the business of reformation. He's in the business of regeneration. He don't want to just make us better people. He wants to make us new people. Regeneration is about being born again. Regeneration is about becoming a new man. Regeneration is about um, not, not just bringing a new a new, a new a vessel to him, but having something in that vessel that will bring cleansing from now on. 
um, which is what the salt was representative of. Salt in the Bible is a purifying agent. And so when a man is born again, when you put, uh, when you put the Spirit of God in a new man, um, then the waters of that man's life, what flows out of that man's life, will be healed, will be fruitful, will be able to multiply itself among the nations. So the new cruise, I think, represents a new man, the salt, the purifying Spirit of God. And the spring is literally the heart of the man. What did Jesus tell the woman at the well? If you have the spring that I want to give you, it'll be inside of you a wellspring of life. You can drink from this water all you want to and you're going to get thirsty again. But if you drink from the water that I have to give you, you'll never thirst again. So I think that that represents a whole change of heart. Um, that God, that, that, that even though we have potential, even though um, we're made in the image of God, even though that we're under the curse of sin, um, we have potential, but we need our heart to be healed. Um, and we don't just need a reformation. We need a regeneration. We don't just need to turn over a new leaf. We need a brand new life. And I think that's what this story is representing is you've got a nation that's sick and Elisha is illustrating for them as the prophet of God that if you come and ask for healing, um, then you can be and will be healed. Um, the other thing that I, I think this is a picture not just of justification but a picture of sanctification uh, in that not only can we be made right with God um, but what comes out of our life then can be a reflection of God um, in, our, in, in our sanctification, in our, in our perfection. Um, the, the only other thing that I want to say about this text is, is that this is a permanent fix. And, and here's what the Bible says, the waters were healed unto this day. Now I don't know when, the, I don't know when 2 Kings was written but the writer of 2 Kings said that Elisha didn't just heal the waters for a day, that he healed the waters for good. Um, I, I looked it up this morning. I, I, you know, I didn't even think about it when I was studying it, but I'm like, I, I knew what the text said, but I said, I wonder if those waters are still good today. And you go on Google and do the same thing I did. I looked this morning, and there's a, it, it's actually called Elisha's Spring. Um, you can go to Jericho today. And, and go to that place where that spring is. I think they said the water's like a constant 27 degrees Celsius or something like that. Um, it, it's some of the purest water on earth. It is healed. It wasn't just healed in Elisha's day. It's still healed today. Um, when, and and I, what, here's what I want you to glean from that. When the Lord touches your heart and your life, when, you bring, when he makes of you a new man and puts his spirit in your heart, and then you not only have um, uh, you, you not only have a potential before that, but but when that becomes a wellspring within you, it is an eternal fix for your sin problem. You can go out and live the life that God has called you to live, do the things that God has called you to do, and be His representative witnesses to the world um, that is around you. It brings everlasting healing. So let me just summarize that: all of us are made in the image of God. But all of us are born under sin's curse. We're all made in the image of God. We all have potential. We got a good location. It's beautiful. We have the, we have the ability to prosper ourselves in a lot of different ways. But we don't have the we don't have the 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 the, the um, potential to prosper ourselves spiritually without the Lord Jesus Christ ruling and reigning upon the throne of our heart. And so we're made under. We're made in God's image, but born under sin's curse. We have the potential, but we need our heart to be healed, to be uncursed, to be made fruitful, to be justified, to be sanctified. And in order for that to happen, we all have to submit ourselves to the word of God regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know the Bible says this, that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. But to those of us who are saved, it's the power of God and the salvation. And listen to me, I know, I know how foolish it sounds to the world. Um, it, it, no matter how lost they are, they, 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 they can be a drunkard, a drug addict, an adulterer, a murderer, whatever, whatever it is that is in their life. And, but when you tell them, if you will take that to Jesus... If you will take it to Jesus and lay it at his feet and ask him for his healing, um, then he will make of you a new man and put his spirit in your heart, forgive you of your sins, and heal you and make you a witness from this point forward forever and ever. I'm telling you, God's still doing that today. 
God's still doing that today. Men who come to him and are willing to submit themselves to Christ according to the word of God, just like the men of that city did according to the words of Elisha. If you'll come to him and submit yourself to him, uh, uh, he is inviting you to him. If you surrender and submit yourself to him, he can heal your heart and make you fruitful so that you can go forth and be his witness into the world. Now, the, the harder part of this whole story comes from the second half in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 23. So Elisha went up from thence, from Jericho, unto Bethel. And as he was going up by the way, there came forth little children out of the city and mocked him and said unto him, Go up, thou bald head. Go up, thou bald head. And he turned back and looked on them and cursed them in the name of the Lord. And there came forth two she-bears out of the wood, and tare forty and two children of them. And he went from thence to Mount Carmel, and from thence he returned to Samaria. I spent too much time in the last part <laughs> to, for, to unpack all of this. So Bethel is the house of God. Abraham built an altar there. Jacob had his, had his um, vision of the ladder going up to heaven there. Um, it was known to the nation of Israel as the place where God dwelt, where God met with men. At the per this particular time in history, it was, it was a house of idolatry. When the kingdom, when, when, when Israel divided itself into the southern and northern kingdoms and two kings came to power, one in each kingdom, so that the northern kingdom did not have to go to Jerusalem to worship because of the animosity that existed between the two, they established a house of worship at Bethel and set up a golden calf at Bethel and a golden calf at Dan to be able to, and, and this is what they said, they claimed to be worshiping the same God that, that Judah was worshiping, um, but the representative of that God was the golden calf. Now they should have learned that, they should have learned that from the Exodus that that's not going to work. Um, but there's a golden calf set up at Bethel now, and men are coming to that place to worship instead of Jerusalem, which is where God said he would put his name and where the nation of Israel would worship him. And let me just, let me first just make a couple of, let me clear your mind a little bit about some things. And, and I know some of you going, might take exception to this, and I would just challenge you to go study it for yourself. Little children is not a good translation. And, and, and most of the controversy around this passage of Scripture is those two words. Most of the controversy that surrounds this passage of Scripture regards those two words, little children. So, and you don't have to read any commentary to figure this out. If you, if you will take you a Strong's Concordance, which gives you the original Aramaic um, word that's been translated into little children, um, what you find out is that little just simply means insignificant or unimportant. It's, 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 these are people that had no title. They were not sons of the prophet. They were not leaders of the city. They were, just, they were just plain, ordinary, insignificant, unimportant people. Um, children is also a poor translation because it can refer to anybody that is considered to be um, young in age. And if you, all you have to do is look this up, and I'm not making it up, so before you, before you, before you get... Feathers all ruffled about me saying little children is a bad translation. The same word that is used for children in this text was used to describe Joseph when we know that he was 39 years old. The same word that has been translated children in this text was used to describe Absalom when he was in rebellion against David, his father. The same word is used for Solomon when Solomon was 20 years old. So there's at least three instances in the Bible where you can find the, that word children that's been translated and apply it to a specific man that we know was an adult man. All of them were adults, but they were considered, especially in the day that they lived in, when people lived to be such an old age, especially in, in, in Joseph's day, 39 years old would have been considered very young in that day when people were living 
um, to be in their, in their 120s, 130s. So um, most likely, and this, this, this helps you process the rest of what I'm going to share with you this morning, most likely this word little children in the text simply means that these were insignificant, unimportant young men who mocked the prophet of God and were in opposition to his ministry. See, Elisha is walking into a center of idolatry. He's walking into an apostate version of Jerusalem. He's walking into a city that claims to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they have a golden calf set up in his place. And these men come out of that city and begin to mock him and oppose his ministry. Now we take this, when we read this, we take this as that they just insulted him. They were just making fun of his bald head. I even read behind one preacher this week in his sermon, um, he said that Elisha went too far, he was too harsh, he said too much, and it was just it was just a sign and a show that anybody in God's work can make a mistake. Well, let me tell you something. Let me, let me tell you my exception to that. God don't have to answer my prayer. God is a just God even if I'm an unjust pastor. God don't have to do what I tell him to do just because I say do it. So to say that, to say that Elisha was out of line, you also have to assume that God was out of line. I don't agree with that at all. So there was a personal insult involved here. Elisha is probably a very young man, and Elijah was a very hairy man. The Bible tells us that. And it, when, it's, when John the Baptist is introduced, it, it introduces him as looking like Elijah the prophet. There's another place where um, the, a king asked the men to describe this man you saw, and they described him as being a very hairy man, and, um, and they said, that's Elijah. Ahab said, that's Elijah. That's him. So there's a stark contrast here. And basically what they're saying is, Elisha, you're nothing like Elijah. And they're mocking him for his lack of having hair when Elijah was a hairy, which would, which would speak of masculinity. And, and, and so they're, they're mocking him, calling him a bald head. Yeah, that's a, that's a personal insult. It's a comparison of him to Elijah. But there's also something else in what they said. Um, they say, go up, go up. What are they saying? They're saying, we... Uh, Wherever Elijah's gone, you go too. Wherever Elijah has been taken to, you go with him. Go up, go up, you bald head. So understand this, that this is, this is not only a personal insult. Um, this is a mockery of these men asking for Elijah to be taken. This is a rejection of God's prophet. And when you reject God's prophet, you reject God. And I can prove that to you in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. The Bible said God sent them prophets, God sent them prophets, God sent them prophets, God sent them prophets. They rejected them, they abused them, they misused them until God rejected them. Until there was no remedy. That's what the scripture says. And so these men had come to that place where they, has, they, they are rejecting the word of God they are rejecting the authority of God. They are rejecting this prophet of God. Now I'm going to take you back to Leviticus chapter 26, verse 20, um, 21 and 22. If you look at Leviticus 26, and, and number, there are five levels of judgment. Jericho is at the second level of judgment. Bethel, Bethel is at the third level of judgment. The fifth level of judgment is when the nation is wiped out. So, so they're right in the middle of the judgment of God because of their disobedience and rebellion against God. He said, if you walk contrary to me and will not hearken unto me, I will bring seven times more plagues upon you according to your sins. This is level three. And then verse 22. I will also send wild beasts among you which shall rob you of your children, destroy your cattle, make you few in number, and your highway shall be desolate. That's what God promised he would do. If you continue to reject me and rebel against me, I'll rob you of your children with wild beasts. I'll destroy your cattle. I'll make your highways desolate. Why? Because everybody's afraid, everybody's afraid to walk down them. Elisha was God's prophet. And when they mocked, 
disrespected and abused Elisha, they mocked, disrespected, and abused God. Literally a spit in his face. Understanding that they had Leviticus and Deuteronomy in their hands. They had the oracles of God. The Bible says that they did. Now they may have laid them aside. They may not have read them. They may not have wanted them, but they had them. They knew better. And what Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 tells us in the New Testament is that we ought not to deceive ourselves because God is not mocked. God will not be mocked. For whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. You can't spit in the face of God and get away with it. God is merciful, gracious, and long-suffering. But these are a people that are at the third wave of rebellion against God. They listen. You go back. They can go back and read and say, "Hey, we're at level three. We better back this thing up. We're at level three of God's judgment. We got two more levels to go, and and and, and we're gone as a nation." By the way, they ignored those next two levels too, and the nation of Israel was assimilated into the nation. They lost their identity and were scattered among the nations of the world. They lost their kingdom. Now, I'm going to chase a rabbit for just a second because this is Sanctity of Life Sunday. And I've seen them, I've seen them all over social media doing this. Atheists, people who call themselves progressive Christians and even some who call themselves deconstructionists who said that they were once a Christian but are walking away from the faith. Um, perhaps apostates. Um, all of them, uh, near, uh, nearly all of them, I've heard them come back to this passage, especially when you start talking about the value of life. They'll take you to this passage and say, God doesn't value life. God doesn't even value little children's life. Now, we, I've already tried to clarify that business of the little children. However, there are times that God did instruct his people to destroy nations, all of them. In fact, part of what his promise was to to Abraham is that there's going to be a, a, a time frame involved in you inheriting this promised land because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. They're going, they're, they're, their time of repentance will expire, but it's not yet. And, and when that time came, God ordered the eradication of them. God ordered Saul when he became king, to go in and eradicate a nation. So, atheists, progressives, apostates use this passage of Scripture and others to cast aspersion on God's goodness and on the idea of the sanctity of human life. But I want to say to you, this is not God being harsh. This is God being holy. This is God being true to His Word. This is God doing what he said he would do. That rebellion will bring a curse. And beyond that, I'm chasing a rabbit for a minute here, but I want you to hear this because I think we need to know how to answer these people. <clears throat> in Matthew chapter 20, there's a parable that Jesus told about a man that went out and early in the morning, hired some people for a penny a day. He went back at 9 o'clock and there were some more people standing around idle and he said, I'll give you a penny a day and he hired them. He went back again. The Bible said at, 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 at uh, the sixth hour of the day, the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, I think is what it said, which would have made it 3 o'clock. And then he went out at 11 o'clock or the 11th hour, which would have been 5 o'clock an hour before dark, an hour before the workday ends, found, still found some more people standing idle, and he said, go work for me for an hour, and I'll give you a penny. Well, when he began to distribute the wages, there were some of them that complained, hey, we've been here all day, and you gave us a penny. These people have been here an hour, and you gave them a penny. How is that fair? And Jesus' answer in that parable to them was, did I not give you what I promised I would give you? Did you not go to work with the understanding that this is what you was going to receive and I was true to my word? And I was true to my word to everyone that came to me regardless of the hour of the day. Now I know there's some things here about salvation. It don't matter when you come to him, we all get the same reward of heaven. Whether you've worked all your life or you've worked an hour, the thief on the cross went to paradise that day. Today you'll be with me in paradise. So there's some, there's some application to that there. But then there's this verse 15. 
where this question is asked to them. Listen, you worked in my field. I gave you my money. I established the wages. And this question is asked, is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Are you, are you calling me evil? Is your eye evil? Are you looking at me with an evil eye because I'm good, because I did what I said? This is my father's world. Do y'all like the government telling you what you can do with your own property? I don't. Man, it gets on my last nerve. I mean, they want to tell me how deep I can bury my separate tank, how, how I got to build my house, how I got they, they take from me and they take from me and they take from me. I, 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 I know they're an authority figure, but, but, but they're taking from me what's mine, and I have, I have problems with that. This ain't ours. Were it not for the mercy and grace of God, none of us would still be here. Without the creative hand of God, none of us would have ever been here. Um, we, we're all very familiar with the 23rd Psalm. But we ought to just read on to the 24th Psalm. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. What's that mean? It means everything. And just in case we didn't clarify, we need clarification. The world and they that dwell therein. It is God's right to do with what he has created as he sees fit. Period. That doesn't need me. To, I, I don't, that's not for me to reconcile. That's not for me to take exception to. That's just me for, to, to say, if we believe that God spoke all of this into existence by the words of his mouth, then he has the sole right and authority to govern it as he sees fit uh, and to say what he um, wanted to say and to enforce what he said um, by his judgment, by his justice. It is God's prerogative to do with this world as he wishes it is he is not ours. Now, I will also say, it doesn't say those bears killed 42 people. It said that, that tear them. Look it up. It means ripped. It means bitten. It means mauled. It means torn. So you can't prove from that text that God slaughtered 42 people because they had a personal insult against Elisha, they didn't just reject Elijah, they reject Elisha, they rejected God and his word and his authority. They were wallowing in idolatry and loved it and they're at the third stage of God's judgment and still rejecting him. So, when anybody makes a free choice to disrespect and rebel against God, his authority, or his word, and his word, they bring the curse upon themselves. God just does what he said he would do. When mercy and grace were readily available. This is where I can tell you where we judge God unjustly because we don't, we don't even, we don't, nobody blinks an eye when God extends mercy to people who didn't deserve mercy. There's no evidence whatsoever that Jericho became all of a sudden a Christian nation because God healed the water. But still God gave them mercy. God healed the water. Nobody questions that, but we question why he came out like he did. Listen, in both, in both cases, God is just being true to his word and true to his nature, true to his character. So, so we may, you can make a free choice to disrespect and rebel against God and bring a curse on yourself. But understand this, when you do that, when you do that, just know this, that mercy and grace were as available to you as it was to anybody else at any time in this world's history.
The Bible, when God looked at the world under Noah's day, he said, it's all wicked. I'm going to destroy it. What did Noah did? He preached for 120 years. What did people do? They rejected him, mocked him, ridiculed him. They had 120 years to receive the mercy and grace of God and said, we don't want that. And, and, and the same is true today. I don't know how much longer we got on this world. Um, but, the, but the wrath of God is coming. The final destruction is coming. But this is what I know. You, you, can't, you, you can make a free choice to accept the mercy and grace of God and, and walk in His ways or you can keep cursing yourself by rebellion and by disobedience and choose His justice and His wrath. <clears throat> I promise you I'm almost done. I'm going to read this from the New Living Translation just because I don't have to make a lot of commentary on it. But I'm going to read to you 11 verses. Um, I'm going to make one more comment about, the, about that verse 25 and then we're done. <clears throat> Romans chapter 1. This letter... I'm sorry, Romans chapter 2, verse 1. You may think you can condemn such people, and he's talking about all the sins in, verse, in chapter 1. You may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you, you are condemning yourself for you who judge others do these very same things. And we know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? And listen to verse 4. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can you see that His kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. There will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. But there will be glory and honor and peace from God for all who do good, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. You understand that what you read in Romans chapter 2 is the same thing that you're reading in Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 28, that you have a free will to choose whether or not you follow God in this word, whether or not you submit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. We can all choose to be uncursed. Or we can all choose to remain cursed. I'll take that a step further and say the Bible says that Jesus was cursed so that we could be uncursed. He bore the full wrath of God upon himself. Cursed is any man who hangs upon a tree. Jesus bore the curse of sin so that we could be healed from our heart outward. I don't know that verse 25 means anything significant, but I'm going to hand this to you and I'm done. What, what, Eli, what Elisha seems to be doing is backtracing the steps of Elijah. Mount Carmel was the place of Elijah's greatest victory against the idolatry of the land. And Samaria was the base of his ministry and would become the base of Elisha's ministry. So you've got a, a, a remembrance, a recall of a victory, and then you've got the ministry that follows that. Remembrance is good for us. And I think that we need to often go back to the cross and understand that he bore our curse and shed his blood so that we could be uncursed, so that we could go do the ministry that he has called and equipped us to do in this world so that others might come to Christ. My, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, I quote this in probably as much as I do any other verse in this building, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, which talks about that whole business of, him, of us being his ambassadors going into the world and speaking a message of reconciliation that God was in Jesus taking the curse upon himself so that he might reconcile us to himself. And, and that verse summarizes, For he had made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Him, the uncursed for the cursed, the just 
for the unjust so that the cursed could be set free and uncursed forever. So if you're here this morning and you're unsaved, if you're here this morning and you're backslidden, if you're here this morning and your life is just unfruitful and barren, um, I'm just the one that delivers the Word of God. I don't call myself a prophet. I'm a preacher. I'm a pastor. I'm a teacher. I'm just the one who delivers the Word of God that was given to me by God. But I'm telling you, if I deliver it faithfully, if I deliver it truthfully, as God intends it to be delivered, I'm His representative and I'm just speaking for Him on His behalf, representing Him before you. And you can reject this Word that I've spoken this morning. And if I've spoken it from God's Word as He intended me to, then when you reject this, you have rejected Him. And He has every right to do as He has said that He would do. But I want to invite you to choose different this morning. To submit yourself, surrender yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ for healing and grace. Kim, would you come as we stand? Lord, thank you for these folks. Thank you for their patience, for their attention, for their attendance. Lord, I pray that I've helped this morning in some way to shed some light upon this word and help us to better. I know that I've struggled with it for a long time myself, personally. It's, it has been one of those passages that I've held at a distance. But I'm thankful for a different revelation of it now. I'm thankful, Lord, that I see it from a different perspective. It is absolutely true that this earth is yours and the fullness of it, all this world and every person that dwells therein, it is, you're, you're completely just to do whatever you want to do with your own. You've given us an opportunity, a freedom, a free will, to make a choice whether or not we remain in rebellion whether or not we remain under the curse of our own sin or to submit ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ and have a healing that will last for all eternity to have our hearts renewed purged of sin and renewed into the image of Christ and I pray God we just make that choice today make the right choice today have your will and your way in this invitation and we'll praise you for any and all that you do in Jesus' name. Amen. As we sing, do you need to come? I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted. You were condemned. I'm alive and well. Your spirit is within me. Joy 